It's the Paddleboard Podcast. Buenas, and thank you for tuning in to the Paddleboard Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson, and today's guest needs no introduction. For you folks, he is a father, a founder of our sport. He tells the story of how it all came together today on the show, Dave Kalama. We start off with the beginnings of big wave surfing and the innovation that took place uh, with, with Dave and Laird, and then move into stand-up paddleboarding, the correlations between big wave innovation and stand-up innovation. And then his, and I thought this was very interesting, uh, what his thoughts are on the future of the performance side of the sport, because he doesn't necessarily 100% agree with where it's headed right now. Uh, they're well thought through arguments though, so definitely worth listening to. A couple quick notes before we get started on the episode. Live on PaddleWoo.com, we now have uh, the PaddleWoo Guides. Uh, these are step-by-step -step instructions on doing maneuvers like the pros. And so right now you can go and check out uh, frontside and backside bottom turns. Backside is the slingshot variation. If you don't know what that is, then you need to head over to PaddleWoo and check that out. We've started naming paddle variations so that we can define these maneuvers. And if you're looking to get better and want to spend a week in paradise, shoot me an email, eric, E-R-I-K, at paddlewoo.com, and uh, come down here for one of our camps that we run down here. Uh, you'll have a blast and score some good waves and learn a lot along the way. It's amazing what you can learn in a week uh, focused on a sport with video feedback and, and folks that can show you what you're doing wrong. So... All right, guys, thanks a lot for tuning in, and let's get down to the episode. All right, enjoy. Dave Kalama, thank you very much for being on the PaddleWoo podcast. Normally, we start out the podcast with a little bit of bio on the guest, but I think everybody knows your bio. Um, so let's start off with, in your history of surfing, in, in your span of, of being a surfer, and especially through the innovation that you've been a part of. When did you have the most fun? What's been the most fun for you on your journey in surf? Oh, I, I, it's a close tie between stand-up and the beginning of strap slash toe surfing. Um, when, we, when we first started connecting ourselves to our boards and we started towing, um, we were learning so much every time we got in the water. Um, it was really exciting. It was really exciting. And um, that made it a lot of fun because I love being involved in that creative process. But um, it's sort of the same thing playing over again with the stand-up. Um, a few years ago when boards were much bigger and they were starting to move down, it was... There was so much to learn, and every time you went, you made a new discovery, and uh, it, it was really exciting to be, you know, at the forefront of, of the development of stand-up, too. I bet. Let's talk about the beginning of the toe surfing and entrance into big waves, and how did that all come about? Um, what was the, the process of innovation there? How quickly were things changing? You know, it, it, it came about probably more so than anything else through windsurfing. Um, we weren't the first ones to tow in, and 
we were might have been some of the first guys to put straps on surfboards but connecting the two is really what made the whole thing kind of fly um but yeah say i it came from windsurfing because in windsurfing foot straps are an essential part of of your equipment lineup and so you get familiar with them you understand the dynamics and the advantages of having foot straps on and there's a lot more you can do with a foot strip as opposed to not having it and in surfing the mentality is you you don't need anything other than your board and for the most part that's true but when we added this foot straps and it allowed us to surf much higher speeds with number one not bouncing off your board um, but that's kind of the obvious um, first interpretation of using a foot strap but it's also the leverage that you gain over the rail by using a foot strap so instead of just just pushing which is how most surfing is is done and how you leverage the board and, and rail it over you can actually pull which is essentially you can't do unless you have a foot strap and so that added control really allowed us to change the design of the boards and then you add in the towing and you take out the paddling part of the equation for catching big waves and now it's it's a whole new set of design criteria and that just made it so fun to go through that process and learn what we didn't know and then try and respond by making equipment that's performs better uh, fulfills the criteria of your design specifications and ultimately you have more fun because of it gotcha and there's some correlation there then with stand-up in the fact that you're using something to get more leverage on your rail with stand-up it's the paddle absolutely right um the paddle just it, i mean it's, it's a tool the paddle is a tool and i always equate it to walking around a construction site with a hammer in your hand and not using it you know that you've got the paddle in your hand it's an incredible tool for leverage for balance for all these different aspects and if you don't learn how to properly use it then you're just wasting um a very effective tool that's in your hands whether you want it to be or, or not you know yeah i've been surfing with uh some kids that are just incredible uh, over the last couple of weeks and watching the way that they use the paddle uh is it's pretty it's pretty cool to see just how far you can take it and how far the sport's going to go um let's talk training a little bit in regards to when you were first getting into big wave surfing how hard were you and and laird he was your tow partner right how, how hard were you guys training out of the water for preparation for being in the water and what were you doing how's that chain training changed between the beginning and and now uh in the beginning you, you, we trained, but I didn't train with the veracity and, and the seriousness that I did at the end. It was almost going through the motions and you know you should train and you want to maximize your performance. But it wasn't until 
New Year's Day 2000 where I had a very close call uh, with drowning. Is that the TED Talk? Yes, exactly. Which is incredible. And for folks who haven't heard the TED Talk, I'm going to put that in the show notes so everybody can go over there and watch that. It's um, I actually watched it again yesterday. I watched it a couple years ago and then again yesterday. Um, you did a great job there. Thank you. In any case, after that experience, um, training took on a whole new meaning. It, it wasn't just training for maximizing my performance. It was now training to survive and maximize your performance too. But it, it took on a whole new level of importance for me after that experience. And I realized that not only if I want to survive a situation like that, but maybe even more so be better prepared on the surfing side so that maybe I can avoid that altogether. And so um, there was a bunch of different levels of motivation for taking the training much more seriously. And, and so from that point forward, um, you know, I wanted to maximize my performance. I wanted to survive. I had kids. Um, so th there was really a lot of reasons to take the training um, to a level of, of literally life and death and train like my life depended upon it. So I got very serious about it at that point. Can you define some of the training that you were doing? There's a lot of fitness geeks that listen to the show, so they'd be interested to hear what you guys were doing. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I did was get my legs a lot stronger in toe surfing um, and big wave toe-in surfing. Um, you're always standing up and you're always riding your board, or at least that's the way we do it. When you're done with your wave, you're not in the water, maybe five seconds, you grab the rope, you're back up, towing back out. So you're literally standing and riding the whole time. And in which case, I wanted my legs to be extremely fit just to handle the use of being uh, on my board so much. And then you throw in the speeds that you hit on a really large wave and then trying to rail it over you're creating a lot of G's and if your legs aren't extremely strong, you're going to buckle. And so that was sort of my first thing I wanted to tick off my list was really improving the strength of my legs, which was a lot of squats, a tremendous amount of lunges, running in the sand. Um, I felt did a lot of things like strengthen your toes, strengthen the bottom of your feet, strengthen your ankles, sort of your shin muscles, all those little fine motor muscles that equated to board control. And so that was sort of my first thing. And then there was um, push-ups, pull-ups, all the upper body stuff that's generally basic type exercises, but, you know, doing a lot more of them. And then I started doing breath-holding exercises. Um Running on the beach, there's the rock running, but there's not a lot of really good rock running places on Maui. So I made up a little program for myself where I try and go through a, a series of breath holding exercises while I'm jogging down the beach. So if I do pass out, I don't got to worry about drowning. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, that's that's brushing the surface. Gotcha. Did you ever have the world close in on you? I, I do some apnea work on a on a bike that I have here and I do series of breath holds while I'm riding and do like 35 seconds holding, 25 seconds breathing, keep your heart rate up the whole time. And I had the strangest thing happen to me a little while ago where 
you're doing it, you feel fine. You'd already gone through a couple convulsions and you're feeling fine. And then all of a sudden the world just collapsed. And I've never had that happen before. Uh, um, pretty strange. I, I hate to even admit what one of my exercises for breath holding was, was <clears throat> I used to turn onto my one road that would come off the highway and head up into my neighborhood. And I thought to myself before I put too much thought into it was <laughs> when you're holding your breath, You've got to keep your mind sharp. You've got to keep your wits about you. So I thought, well, okay, if I hold my breath while I'm driving, you know, I really need to stay alert and keep my <laughs> my act together, right? So I'd hold, I'd start at the bottom of the road and I'd drive up and go as far as I could. And I kept doing this over a few months and I kept, you know, okay, go another hundred yards and I could use road signs and houses as, as markers. And after I get into it a ways, I'm I'm getting up into two and a half minutes, and I'm thinking, wow, this this is good, you know. And one day I'm like, God, I'm only like a quarter mile from home. I might make it. And right when I have that thought, just like you say, the sides start coming in. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was aware enough what was going on. I swerved to the side, hit the brakes, and tried to stop my car in case it kept collapsing in on me. But uh, it didn't, and I, I breathed, and, and uh, at that point, I went, you know what? There's got to be better ways, because this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to end up running into a telephone pole or somebody else. So uh, that's when I developed the the thing I did on the beach and thought that was probably a lot safer. Yeah. Um, how long was your static breath hold uh, at your best when you're when you're doing a lot of your big wave surfing there? I want to say I made it to like 240, which, you know, isn't that impressive by today's standards. But uh, before before guys had really got in, gotten into taking the breath holding classes, mm -hmm. uh, it seemed good enough to me. I hadn't heard of people holding much more than that. And then not too long after, you know, the guys were going over to the Big Island of Hawaii doing the breath holding training and getting up above five minutes. And it was like, oh, my God, that's that's a whole different deal. Yeah, that's amazing what they're doing these days. Uh, Bobby Kim, who was just written up in Surfer Magazine, has just moved down to uh, Costa Rica where I live here. And he was talking to me about how he's training some of the pros. He trained Josh Kerr and Taylor Knox and stuff. And he yeah. was saying that he'd have them sprint a 25-meter sprint in the pool. They would not get a breath, and then he'd hold them underwater at first for a minute. And then at the end of the training, he could have them sprint a 25-meter and hold them under for three minutes, spinning them around which just seems ludicrous to me. Yeah, that's hard for me to even fathom. I'm, I'm thinking I can do the sprint, and probably at about 15 seconds, that guy's getting punched in the face so I can get to the surface. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that's amazing what they can do. It, it, it truly is amazing. And I'm really glad to hear it. it it's very inspiring because what the guys are riding nowadays is – just so unbelievable and they've taken it so far beyond what big wave riding used to be it's 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 so impressive yeah how do you feel about the sport now it seems like it's a popular sport like you look at the lineup of jaws on a big day and there's a bunch of guys out there and and, and the technology that is aiding um the sport as far as flotation and rescue and the whole thing what, what are your thoughts on the sport has it lost some of its purity or do you think it's all positive um, to me, I see it as all positive, quite honestly. Um, I think it's not where it's at today had it not been for toe surfing. So I think toe surfing 
added and it changed the mentality of big wave riders from very macho, no flotation, no anything, which was the standard for so many years, to having a much more open mind, looking at it much more uh, scientifically, I guess you could say. I'm not sure that's the right description, but looking at it with an open mind and, and analyzing it and going, okay, let's get past our egos and just figure out what's the safest, smartest way we can do that. And a lot of that came from, from the toe surfing and stuff that we did, which opened up the mentality and changed the mindset. So now guys could reapproach big wave surfing with a, with a new outlook and a much safer approach that ultimately allowed them to push the limits way beyond anything that had been done before. And um, it is so impressive because I know the level of commitment it takes to not only ride those waves, but to put yourself in the situation to catch one. Mm -hmm. it, it, people see riding the waves and the guy taking off, and, and that is impressive. There's no doubt about it. But the setup to put yourself in the right spot and then see a set coming, not panic and paddle out or get away from it, but run towards it. Is, is such a massive feat of commitment that that to me is almost the most impressive thing. A lot of guys are good surfers and, and the riding to me is more about talent. Yes, there's a lot of courage that is necessary, but uh, everything prior to the riding, it's all between the years. And, and that's to me where true big wave riders excel. Gotcha. Are you surprised that there's not more people getting seriously injured? Um, I am a little bit surprised, but I know how effective the flotation is. And and without the flotation, there's absolutely more fatalities. But because of the flotation, um, guys are, are going way beyond uh, anything that you could ride without the flotation. You think there's a possibility of uh, you know, accidents with the technology and putting people in a really bad situation where they would neither, they wouldn't otherwise have been? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, you know, you you get hit in the head, all bets are off. You know, and that that could happen on a, a three foot wave as well as a, a thirty foot wave, and technology um, can't really address that unless you're wearing a helmet but then there's some downsides to helmets also but uh you know all things being equal there's so many things a cut from a fin there's just so many things outside your control but the the one constant that is not going to change is you need air and the flotation whether you've got broken bones or whatever the situation might be no air no survival and so as long as you can get back to the surface and get a breath of air, you can have a very good chance of surviving whatever the situation is, be it broken bone or head injury or whatever it is, as long as you're breathing. Mm -hmm. So when did you then hop on a stand-up for the first time? Was that training for big wave surfing? No, the first time I truly stand-up paddled was in 1995. Uh, Laird and myself were both sponsored by a company named Oxbow, and we were doing a photo shoot. 
for them. And at that time, we both rode 12-foot boards, uh, 12-foot long boards through most of the summer because actually what they did was they helped us train for big waves. Riding, um, which might sound a little bit absurd, but when I explain it, hopefully it'll make sense. 12-foot boards, you have to plan ahead. You have to anticipate what the wave is going to do. You, you got to make sure you don't put yourself in a tight situation where the board won't fit into the wave. So there's a lot of planning ahead. Uh, you have to be very patient because those boards don't turn quickly and things of that nature. And all those characteristics are exactly what's going on in big wave surfing. You have to be patient. You got to plan ahead. You've got to constantly be reading the wave, you know, a full turn or two ahead of where you are because the boards won't fit into tight little spots. And in the summertime, it's small waves. And, you know, obviously a 12 footer doesn't fit into a two foot wave very easily. So you got to plan ahead. And so we rode 12 footers a lot to help us through the summer months with our judgment and skill of riding big waves. And one of the byproducts of that is on a 12 footer, you can stand up and float back out to the lineup. So on the South shore in Maui, a lot of times the wind's offshore. So we'd ride a wave, kick out, stay standing and blow back out to the lineup. <laughs> and that's what we were doing on this particular day. But I happened to have a couple of canoe paddles in the back of my truck. So I was like, well, why just stand here? Why don't I go grab the paddles and let's paddle back out and not take so long to get back out there. And that's how we kind of stumbled into stand up. That's epic, completely organic. Um, as one of the fathers of the sport, um, are you surprised at where it is today? Um, there's certain aspects of it surprised me a little bit, but, um, other things, no, because we, we knew early on, this is a lot of fun. It's great exercise because of the size of the boards. A lot more people are going to be able to do this than surfing. So that, that entry-level barrier was much lower than, than going out and learning how to surf. Um, our friends seemed to like it quite a bit whenever we shared it with them. So that's a good indication. Mm -hmm. if, if not only you think it's fun, but the people around you think it's fun. And so we knew it was going to go. And we, we, we always looked at it like, if you look at how many kayaks are in the world... There's no reason there shouldn't be the same number of stand-up and potentially even more, in my opinion, because to me, it's more fun. It's way more fun. Exactly. What did surprise me was the yoga. I honestly did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a cool thing about this sport that there's so many elements and genres and disciplines that you can do. It has something to offer everyone. And it really is uh, a sport that everybody throughout the world, no matter what age, no matter what skill level you have, you can do it. Yeah. Do you do you see the sport starting to separate into uh, niches? Yeah, I, I do. But um, sort of like bicycling or you know cycling. Yeah. It's it's all considered cycling, but you know there's beach cruisers, BMX, BMX on dirt, on ramps. There's road cycling, and 
mountain biking. And now there's even a bunch of different disciplines in mountain biking. And, you know, it just goes on and on. But it's all on two wheels and you're pedaling and it's all cycling. And I look at stand up the same way. You're on a board. You've got a paddle. And, yeah, what your version of it might be very different than somebody else's. But they're all related mm-hmm. and they're all from the same thing. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think it's going to be good for the sport, though, to have some uh, identities for the different types of the sport because I think that they'll grow um, better in that way. Yep. But, but I think that there's going to be a ton of crossover. If you look at the surfers now, I mean, the best surfers are now, the majority of them are the best racers. Just um, the talent for the, for the sport of stand-up. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. For the most part, the best athletes rise to the top of sports, mm-hmm. and stand-up is no different. Um, as as we get more athletic riders involved in the sport, um, irregardless of of the discipline, their athletic ability, their competitive nature, is going to drive them towards the front of of whatever discipline we're talking about. Yeah. So our podcast here is high performance stand up paddle surfing focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you see the sport right now, the world tour, um, the athletes like Kai and Zane and Mo and Sean and all those guys um, in their current place? And then where do you see that sport going? If you could look out from your crystal ball five years from now, what does the sport look like? Um, you know, it's, it's headed towards high-performance surfing, and the surfing is getting much better, much more polished. These guys are getting much more precise. Um, the, the one downside I see is that as long as they're riding um, very shortboard-style boards, we're always going to be compared to... The, well, it's not the ASP anymore, the WSL, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and we're always going to come up a little bit short because those guys are so good and the nature of, the, of their boards being shorter allows them greater maneuverability. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what worries me is the comparison between the two. We're always going to come up, well, for the foreseeable future, maybe, maybe not real long term maybe at some point in the future there's a shift and and the best surfers move towards stand up and not shortboarding you know that might be blasphemous to say to shortboarders but you know who knows what happens 10 20 years down the road but um in the shorter term um to some degree we're always going to be compared to to the best you know Kelly Slaters and and Joel Parkinsons of the world and if we want to be honest with ourselves, we're going to come up a little bit short for the time being. So, um, quite honestly, I, I would, I would love to see. I doubt it will happen, and I'm not even sure it's right. But I would love to see stand-up performance surfing shift ever so slightly, so that it's still considered high performance. It still is high performance. But it's not the same boards, and maybe we move back towards um, longboarding ever so slightly, just to differentiate ourselves. From, from the sport of shortboarding. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and actually, I, I spoke um, 
Colin's been a guest on the show a couple times, and Fisher Grant, uh, who's also a crazy good longboarder. And I think there'll probably be a resurgence of longboarding, stand-up longboarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a great fit. I, I also think that maybe I disagree with you a little bit, and there's two parts to this, in that there are advantages uh, for high-performance stand-up, stand-up versus shortboarding in regards to uh, power turns. No, I, I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah. And as a stand-up surfer, we all know that. Right, right. It, it's, there's no question. I absolutely agree with you. And, and, and to take that a step further, in the future, at some point, these guys are going to realize the best way to catch the biggest wave ever ridden uh-huh. is going to be on a stand-up board, not a paddle-in prone board. Yep, yeah. Well, there's a lot of guys that are saying that they prefer, they feel more comfortable on big waves with a paddle in their hand. And it makes sense for seeing waves. It makes sense for, you know, think about the bottom turn and how much leverage and, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Total agreeance there. Total agreeance. Awesome. Um, Let's talk technology on board. So you you are the owner of Imagine Surfboards? No, I I wish. I'm (laughs) I'm just the designer. Okay. Yeah, Imagine is the company I work with, um, and I am just the designer. But I also have a lot to do with the marketing and advertising and, and overall direction and message of, of what we're trying to communicate. Well, it comes across great. I love it. And I actually really like your new angler. I do a lot of spear fishing, and uh, I think that would be a great rig. I, I Right now, I, I take out a, a blow-up when I do my spear fishing <laughs> trips when I paddle out for that, but... I think the angler would be a great board for that. Yeah, I was just up in Mammoth Lakes. Um, we wanted to get some some video footage of, of the boards, um, you know, in, in lakes and rivers. And uh, the Owens River, I don't know if people are familiar with that river up in Mammoth, but it's a pretty popular fishing river. And uh, because of the drought California has been experiencing, there, mu- there wasn't much water in it. So it's like kind of between two inches to maybe a couple feet deep. But with the fin that the angler comes with where it kicks up, it was like I could run the whole river no problem because the fin's not dragging. It just kicks up in the back. So I, I thought it was pretty cool. That'd be epic for red fishing in Florida. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man. Um, where do you see board design going? I'm not convinced that the, in the future the, the, the best boards for performance stand-up surfing are, are going to mimic shortboarding 100% because of the extra volume that we need to stand on them. Um, how much thought have you put into the future of, you know, stand-up surfing and alternative board design? Is that something you spend a lot of time thinking about? Uh, it actually is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Because I'm a bigger guy, mm-hmm. the, reality of, the reality of me riding uh, a 24 to 25-inch very pulled in nose short board style board is not realistic i'm too big so you know while i might have that type of outline they're going to be longer than what the guys kai and mo and those guys are riding um but that sort of motivates me to come up with that design that does carry the volume um enhances the stability because you know, volume doesn't always equate to stability. It's sort of how you proportion it and where you place it is also very important. And um, which leads me back to my philosophy um, of how, you know, I hate to even say of, of 
dictating to anybody how they should surf. It's such an individual thing, and it comes down to philosophy and and the mentality and your history of how you grew up and what's important to you. And there is no right way to do it. The, the, the bottom line is if you're on a wave and you're enjoying it, you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, my focus is calming down just a little bit. I still want to make the same turns. I still want to go in the same places, but I want to do it with just a bit more style than it seems like the trend is right now. I'd love to see, and that's why I say just just skew it back towards longboarding a little bit, not not a lot, and not that we can't get back into longboarding altogether because I, I absolutely love the longboarding stand-up. Um, it's one of the, my favorite parts of the whole sport, but in terms of high performance, um, maybe go away from those real pulled noses, something that's just a little more versatile, uh, sort of accentuates continual speed and flowing movement, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. Um, if, if I kind of had to generalize and, and point someone in a direction, but like I say, I, I hate to dictate to anyone how to ride a wave because I really believe it's a, and it's an individual thing and you can't do it wrong. You just literally can't do it wrong. No. Well, I think it'd be really interesting to hear you and Colin McPhillips have this conversation because Colin's a big advocate of your viewpoint too, wherein mm-hmm. he hates ugly surfing. And when you get down to a real small standup, especially some of the boards that are not really surfboards, you end up just kind of throwing a tail around and there's not a lot of rail involved. Yeah. And and I'm a heavy rail guy. I, I, I like, I appreciate guys that know how to use a rail. Right. Which is what makes Moe's surfing so incredible is that he's, he's really doing full rail turns that anyone would be proud of on any board. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, and I hope that the sport goes more that way and you start seeing the rail turns and rail work being really emphasized. Cause that's the beauty I think of the paddle is being able to just sit that far over your rail and still be able to get back up over your board. Yeah, and and then that sort of severs the comparison between what we're doing and what the WSL is doing, and then we get more merit and appreciation because we're not trying to surf the same. Mm-hmm. You know, and it might only be a, a small couple degrees off of what they're trying to do, but just a little bit can be enough to. To go, oh, they're not trying to copy us. They're they're sort of doing their own thing, and then you can appreciate it for what it is. Yep, yep. And when I also think that sport of stand up lends itself to kind of a free surfing mentality more, and so I think mm-hmm. you're going to start seeing more guys going the free surfing stand up route, which is draw you know like like picture like Rob Machado on a twin fin in Bali yep. or something like that, and having guys go out there and showcasing that. And that's what's for me, that's what's so fun about surfing on a standup is just how fast you can go when you put yourself in the right spot and then you can still do a big turn, but then you can, it's like the perfect marriage of shortboarding and longboarding if you do it right. Uh, yeah. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> um, so, so what kind of stuff are you working on with your boards right now? Well, um, I've been playing around with a lot of, old sort of contemporary fish outlines mm-hmm. um, to address the box board, as I like to call them. I'm, 
I'm not a big proponent of the box. The box, like the tomo um, shape, the cutoff nose, the blunt nose? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I understand the theory behind it, and in, in very specific conditions, um, I am sure they're very effective. And I tested some, and I've tried some, and, and they are. It, to me, when you get that extreme in your design uh, criteria or characteristics – you're essentially designing for a very specific set of conditions. And in those conditions, it will perform well, but at the cost of um, compromising other characteristics or other types of surf or conditions. Um, and I, li I like to ride boards that are very um, broad in their range and, and fit into a lot of different kinds of, kinds of conditions. And so to me, the, the fish, kind of the old school fish with the wide tail, addresses that lift at low speeds. Um, the straight rail line in the tail area gives you a lot of that projection. Mm -hmm. But I still, I like the nose outlines um, of the old school fishes because they look like a surfboard. Mm -hmm. And aesthetics to me are still... Uh, right or wrong, very high priority on my list of design criteria. Well, surfing is all about style, right? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, so like the retro 20 designs that you're talking about, probably quad fins though for, for stand-up. Quads, yeah, quads, and then ch playing around with, with the bottom shapes. I've been doing a lot of just single concaves to flatten the tail. Um I wrote a lot of that design in my longboards through the 90s and really liked it. Um, and in my stand-ups until recently, I, they've been single into doubles and then flat out the tail. But uh, at least in the smaller wave stuff, I'm, I'm kind of liking the single concave to flatten the tail to kind of help keep the speed up and keep moving through the, the small waves and the flat stuff. Gotcha. What's your go-to board these days? What did you surf this morning? Uh, this morning I surfed a 9-2 kind of high performance longboard style. Mm -hmm. um, I, I go back and forth between a 9 and a 9-0 and then down into uh, say a 7-10 or an 8-2 if I feel like riding a shortboard. What kind of and I've got some shortboards that are you know fishy looking. I've got mini eggs that are you know sort of a longboard nose and a round pin. Um, if I feel like you know, connecting my turns a little more and trying to surf how I was explaining, um, where everything's a little more connected and smooth and, and still hitting some lips and banging off of stuff here and there, but try and do it within the confines of connecting everything and maintaining speed. Um, so I, I like to change it up quite a bit from day to day, and it, it kind of keeps me uh, learning and motivated and, and engaged in the, the day. What kind of volume are you riding on the bottom end? <laughs> I laugh because I don't know my volumes very well. <laughs> um, I, all I can tell you is like typically 28 is kind of my sweet spot for width, sometimes a little narrower in my gunny stuff if I'm riding big waves, mm -hmm. a little bit wider, a quarter inch wider, maybe half at the very most if I'm going down into seven eights and stuff like that. Yep. Um, and then my thicknesses are three and three quarters to three and seven eighths, sometimes pushing four, but, uh, kind of in that zone, you know? Gotcha. Um, 
so they float they float okay for you then you're not underwater uh i'm usually mid foot to top of my ankle okay and even on some of my longer boards um especially when i got i got an 11 footer i absolutely love to ride but what i did was i brought the volume way down because the length is going to give me volume so when i ride my 11 footer i can ride it like I'm riding one of my normal longboards and it's still, there's no compromise in performance. And that might be a, a bit of an oxymoron to think a long, an 11 footer is a, a performance board. But um, I, I, even when I'm on 11 footer, I, I like to turn hard. I still like to do all the stuff I do, but I like that extra glide that an 11 footer can offer. Okay. Um, paddles, what kind of, uh, what kind of paddles are you using? What kind of flex do you like in your paddles and where do you cut them? I like them very stiff. Uh, my length is 74 on the short side. Uh, probably 76 is my normal surfing length, which is a little longer than most guys, but they're a lot more underwater than I am too. Mm -hmm. uh, and then 78 for my racing paddles. Uh, I almost exclusively use the V-Drive 101, occasionally the V-Drive 91. Um, but... And I come from using really big blades. I used to use a 120. Mm. Um, so, and the 101 basically has the same power as a Kanaha 110. So that was the idea is to make a smaller blade, but with the same power as, as a bigger blade. Um, so that that's my paddles. Uh, and how much race training are you doing these days? What, you downwinding, things like that? Currently, not much because I'm not doing all the races I normally do at this time of year. Um, I've been traveling a fair amount, and it sort of broke my rhythm for all the training I like to do. And um, so I've decided to take the year off, um, hopefully miss it, which I am already missing it, and use that to motivate me for next year. And... Um, yeah, regroup for next year because I, I know what it takes to be prepared and to be competitive at the level I want to be and to go out half-cocked and try and compete with the likes of Connor and Kai um, will only lead to extreme frustration if I don't feel I'm completely prepared and I don't want to do that to myself. So I'm trying to be smart, take a year off, miss it, get my juices flowing again, get my uh, my uh, desire to to want to be competitive uh, and gear up for next year so last question for you dave and thanks a ton for for being on the show this has been fun learned a lot yep. um you have experienced about everything you can possibly experience in surfing at this mm -hmm. point in your life what makes you really happy like what's a perfect day for dave kalama a perfect day is Going down to the North Shore, having somewhere between 10 to 15 foot outer reefs, um, go grab a bite of, to eat with a couple of my buddies, go to another spot where it might be six to eight, do some more performance style surfing, get some barrels, Go home, eat lunch, hang out, hang out with my kids and my family the rest of the afternoon. That sounds like a pretty perfect day. 
<laughs> it's perfect to me. <laughs> it's dope. It's it's incredible and it's super um, inspiring that after everything that you've you've experienced, the whole thing at the end of the day, you're a grom who just wants to surf the whole time. It's awesome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, man. Well, Dave, thanks a ton for being on the show. You have any closing thoughts you want to leave everyone with? Um, get out on the water. It sure makes you feel better. It makes me feel a lot better. And just about everybody that does usually comes in with a smile or some kind of uh, little gem of, of the day that helps them feel better about life. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm sure I don't need to tell that to most of your listeners, but, uh, get out there, have fun. It just makes everything else better. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure. It's the Paddle Podcast.